0: Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir, Returning, a spiritual journey one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I've ever read. Of his book, Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Myer, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NAFTA. We're back again, taping on Dan Wakefield's front porch during the pandemic.
1: How poetry saved me. I feel as if my initiation into real life of trying to understand and deal with life was through poetry. In high school, Carl Sandburg was a big force for me. I went to Shortridge High School in the Great Days, a decade after Vonnegut. A great teacher known as Abe, Roy V. Aberson was an assistant coach in every sport. and In a history class he taught, he played a record of Carl Sandburg's The People Yes, and I went out and bought a book of Sandburg's Complete Poems. One of those helped ease me through a plan that was already forming the idea of leaving home and going to some other city, some other place it was called the red sun and the lines about leaving home were in the voice of the sun addressing his friends and relatives there is no pity of it and no blame after all it is only this You for the little hills, and I go away. For me, it said, I'm not leaving because I don't love you guys and these places, but I want to know more, do more, experience more. I want to see what's out there. I think one reason I was so open to poetry is, is that I never tried to be a poet, at least only once in high school. Let it be recorded that I wrote a poem solely for the purpose of trying to impress any pittinger who was in love with Bobby Robinson. They are married and have battalions of children and grandchildren because Bobby was at Dartmouth and he was a damn good poet. My poem was about a train. The monon was in my backyard and shook the overhead lamp in my bedroom when it hooted past, but my effort at rhyming didn't do the job. It didn't beat Bobby. With a kind of relief, I said, I'm not a poet. I don't want to be one, won't try to be one. And that let me enjoy poetry without being burdened by competition. I could read it and relax. At Columbia College in New York City, I had a poetry course with Mark Van Doren a Pulitzer Prize poet and an Illinois Midwesterner whose accent made me feel at home in the overwhelming city. I took a course with Lionel Trilling, the great literary critic, a course called Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats. I can still recite an Irish airman foresees his death in the second coming and lots of other lines from Yeats crazy james bones wrap that foul body up in as foul a rag i carry the sun in a golden cup the moon in a silver bag and prayer for my daughter may she live like some green laurel rooted in one dear perpetual place and a line from among school children that comes to me often now and helps me contend with this era of age. Why should not old men be mad? I'd been fearful of taking Trilling's class because of his reputation and image of the classic intellectual scholar. He cultivated a slightly English accent and dressed like an Oxford don though his writing was not at all like that. I delighted in the rule, he set the first day of class. While you are taking this class in Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats, he said, I do not want any of you to read any literary criticism of Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats. One of the collegiate intellectual pretenders, they often wore vests, asked with dismay, what then shall we read, Professor Trilling? I treasured Trilling's answer. We shall read every poem, he said, written by Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats. I wanted to cheer. Trilling explained further that we will not read these poems once, but ten or twelve or twenty times until we begin to discern their meaning. I learned to read poetry in that class. Before going on, I realized I need to go back. I grew up in a time when poetry was a common language. In the first grade class of Ms. Roxy Lingle Day at School 80 in Indianapolis, this was September 1938, we had a poetry contest. It was one by Susan Fox, who recited Sandberg's Fog, famous as the shortest poem anyone knew. I recited a ditty that began "Poor old Jonathan Bing. He got in his carriage to visit the camp. Brevity won. At Camp Chang we kidded around, reciting poems and reading the corny ones in the Boy Scout Manual of 1942. My great friends Jack Hickman and Dickie Warren and I would recite back and forth in mocking pseudo-serious tones a poem in the Scout Manual by Edgar A. Guest, almost as famous as Joyce Kilmer, the author of Trees, which for some unknown reason everybody was supposed to learn in those days. The cornballed guest poem, I think it was called The Comer, began, He may now be an office boy, a messenger, or clerk, the smallest paid in the employ of him who gives him work. At that we would crack up laughing, and David Lewis could recite a doozy that began, Oh, the heroes were plenty and well known to fame, and the troops that were led by the Tsar. And the bravest of these was a man by the name of Ivan Skavinsky, Skavar. David would pantomime elegant swordplay as he recited that one. I became a sports writer for the Shortridge Daily Echo, the first high school daily paper in the country. And I wrote a Thursday column called Sport Life, in friendly competition with Dick Luger's Tuesday column Shooting the Works. I started reading the great sports writers of the past, the giants of the golden age of sports in the nineteen twenties. It wasn't all flappers, it was also fullbacks. The greatest of all was Grantland Rice, who wrote the most poetically to ever begin an account of a football game. Outlined against the blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death. These are only aliases. Their real names are Stuldreer, Miller, Crowley, and Leyden. That was the legendary Notre Dame backfield. To beat Army six to nothing, to be named the national champions in 1924, and began a tradition that lifted a little college in South Bend, Indiana, to a prominence that never would fade. I bought a 78 RPM record of Newt Rockne, the Notre Dame coach, giving a pep talk to his team. It sounded like a man who had gone stark raving mad and made my whole body tinkle. No other orator had that effect on me till Winston Churchill came along with his free world fight poem. We shall fight them on the land and on the sea. We shall fight them in the villages and in the towns. And we shall never surrender. Before jumping to Churchill, though, I should note, the Grantland Rice's poetic flair did not end with his coverage of the epic Army-Notre Dame game. He covered all sports, and sometimes he was moved to break into verse, as he did on the death of the great jockey Earl Sandy. Never will see him ridin', never his likes again, never a handy guy like Sandy. Booten and Baby's Inn. After Columbia, I moved to Greenwich Village, a hotbed of poetry. Maxwell Bodenheim, a poet of past note who had gone to sea, went from booth to booth at the San Remo, peddling his poems for nickels and pennies. He never starved. I learned that writers hung out at the White Horse Tavern, Painters could be found at the Cedar Bar, and seldom the twain did meet. The White Horse became the hot spot for writers when the great Welsh poet Dylan Thomas had his last of innumerable drinks before passing out, being taken across the street to St. Vincent's Hospital and dying of alcoholism, as it was reported, at age 39. Like countless others, I bought his records, which were said to sell more than his books because of the power of his voice, which made other poets of the time really mad. I can still hear his voice, not only in my mind, but I still have the records, and I'll never forget his most famous poem, one that is especially appropriate for me now at age 87. Do not go gentle into that good night. I knew people who had that poem scotch-tape to the wall of their kitchen or bedroom or study. The big round table in the back of the white horse, Michael Harrington, author of The Other America that inspired LBJ's poverty program, led a never-ending conversation for ten years about politics, literature, history, and anything else that started conversation. It was there that I first heard about Federico Garcia Lorca, the great Spanish poet, whose poet in New York was in a popular paperback edition, with English on one side of a page, translation by Ben Bellet, and Spanish on the other. I carried that book with me like a priest with the catechism everywhere I went for a couple of years. I quoted from the poem Dawn at the head of a chapter in my first book, Island in the City, the World of Spanish Harlem. The first on the streets know the truth in their bones, for these neither Eden nor passions unleafing. They go to the slough of the ciphers and strictures, to the games without genius, and the sweat without profit. Poetry was in the air in those days, just as jazz was. Mailer said jazz was the background music of New York in the 50s. Poetry was the liturgy. It was not only in the village but uptown at the YMHA on Lexington Avenue and even on Broadway. One of my favorite Broadway experiences right up there with South Pacific was the great Irish actress Siobhan McKenna standing alone on a bare stage and reading the poetry of William Butler Yeats. All change, change utterly. A terrible beauty is born. I also had the Cadman record of McKenna reading the Molly Bloom soliloquy, and although I had taken a course from Trilling on Ulysses, I knew I had not understood Joyce's novel until I heard McKenna read the Molly Bloom soliloquy. I was a flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls use or shall I wear a red yes? Holy, holy, holy. In a series of amazingly lucky strikes, I was writing for the Nation magazine at the time, and their good publisher, George Kirstein, nominated me for a fellowship to the Breadloaf Writers' Conference in Middlebury, Vermont. The first of its kind, it spawned countless imitations and still carries on today, first as a fellow. And then when I served on the conference staff every even-numbered year of the coming decade, 1960 to 1970, I met and heard many of the poets whose work I would come to know and love. When I first went as a fellow in 1959, the poet May Swenson was also a fellow and she became an important mentor and friend when we returned to New York. Some of May's poems lit my life, helped me to see beyond the dungeon I had entered of Freudian psychoanalysis. One of those blessed poems was appropriately titled The Key to Everything. Is there anything I can do, or has everything been done? You're waiting for the right person, the doctor or the nurse, the father or the mother, or the person with the name you keep mumbling in your sleep. Another of her poems I treasure is Mortal Surge. We are eager, we pant, we whine like whips, cutting the air, the frothing sea, the roaring furnace. The jeweled eyes of animals call to us. Beyond the gift of her poems, Mae Swenson believed in me as a writer.
0: She wrote her belief on the title page of one of her books she gave me, predicting that the novel I had been told I couldn't write
1: by the publisher of my first book would be written and published, and it was. May Swenson's belief, written and signed, meant everything to me and kept the dream alive. Those two weeks at Bredloaf as a fellow was a condensed lifetime and a graduate poetry course. The Writers' Conference was the brainchild of Robert Frost, who lived nearby in Ripton, Vermont, and suggested to Middlebury College that the cabins and dining room in the mountains be put to use when the Middlebury summer language programs ended in mid-August. Fittingly enough, Frost himself came for a reading when I was a fellow. Snowy-haired, curmudgeonly, he ate vanilla ice cream during the cocktail hour at the staff cottage and showed his mean streak when he focused on a middle-aged poet who he heard had become a Catholic in the past year. I hear you've given up, he told her. But all was forgiven to the poet who wrote such American classics as The Road Not Taken, Mending Wall, After Apple Picking, and Directive, whose last line is embedded in my mind. Weep for what little things could make them glad. The Pulitzer Prize poet Richard Wilbur was on the staff. I got to hear him read some of his great poems. Love calls us to the things of this world, and he gave one of the best talks on writing I have ever heard. Not just about poetry, but about any words written to tell a story of fact or fiction, oration or prayer. Wilbur told how the family of a dying woman was gathered around her deathbed, not knowing what to do. And she raised up from her pillow and said, throw away my books, throw away my clothes, throw away the stones of the house, throw me away and fix breakfast. Wilbur's point was that she didn't say anything fancy or flowery, nothing like, ye the living must be courageous and carry on with the great challenge of life, or kindle the flame of your forefathers as you face the future. No, how far more powerful it was to be simple and specific, enabling people to move and act. Fix breakfast. I was inspired by Wilbur's talk and his own poetry. Love calls us to the things of this world and the lines from that poem that refreshed and enlivened me. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone. And the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits keeping their difficult balance. When I got home to the village from Bredlow, I saw that Wilbur was giving a reading at NYU the following week, and I eagerly went to hear him. I also read that on the same night, Jack Kerouac was giving a reading at the village vanguard, the jazz club where the great trombone player J.J. J. Johnson and his group were playing. J.J. got his start on Indiana Avenue. I introduced myself, and we talked about Shortridge and Attics. I went to the Wilbur reading first, and then to the Vanguard. Wilbur was as inspiring as he had been at Breadlow. Jack was drunk, spelling papers and slurring words. At a break, Kerouac said to J.J. Johnson, I'd like to play the trombone myself. J.J. said, you look more like a trumpet man to me. I reported on the two events in a review in The Nation, concluding that it was Richard Wilbur who was on the road, who had been all along. A few weeks later, George Kirstein told me that Kenneth Rexroth, the San Francisco poet, and promoter of all things beat, had come to his office and complained about my review. He asked me if Wakefield was some old-time life guy, and I told him, no, he's 20-something and he lives in the village. Rexroth, for the record, was the premier promoter of the new fad of poetry read to jazz. He called it jazzetry. My writer friend Ivan Gold quipped, Why not poass? I was invited back to Breadlope to give a talk the next year and met a fellow who I heard had a groundbreaking book of poems coming. She was lounging in an armchair, puffing with vigorous intensity on a cigarette and swinging a leg as if anxious to get up and go somewhere. I introduced myself and told her I'd heard good things about her new book her first, and she gave a raucous laugh and said, what do you think of the title? To Bedlam and Part Way Back. Pretty good, huh? You think it'll go over? I said I didn't really know, but that was before I heard her read. That fall, I went to a poetry reading at the YMHA in New York, featuring three young poets. I only knew one, George Starbuck, an editor at Houghton Mifflin, A bright, personable fellow whose poetry I enjoyed. When I saw that this Bedlam person from Breadlow was on the program, her name was Anne Sexton, I went, bracing myself for what was to come. Some jokey poems delivered with a raucous laugh? When she came to the podium, she seemed transformed. Her body became straight and still, her voice, a compelling contralto that cast a spell. She read Double Image, a poem about her daughter, her mother, and herself, an intergenerational connection of three women. I knew I was listening to a voice that would be heard, words I would come to know and treasure. That kind of thing happened in New York in those days. You could walk into a place, a seemingly ordinary place, and walk out transformed, blessed. That's what I felt after hearing Ann Sexton read her poem. Her line that has rung in my head with a depth of solace since I first heard it comes from her poem, Kind, sir, these woods, dedicated to Thoreau that tells about a childhood game of closing your eyes and turning around in the woods and feeling you were lost till you opened your eyes and found it was only myself caught between the grapes and the thorns. One of her many poems that stuck in my mind, not only his poem, but a whole writing course was you, Dr. Martin? It was in her first book that came from her experience of spending time at McLean's, the famous mental hospital in Boston, where other poets and writers, Robert Lowell, most notably, had stayed in times of inner trouble. The poem was about the psychiatrist Anne and other patients in it saw in his work every day after he had first had breakfast in the hospital dining room. The opening line of the poem is, You, Dr. Martin, walk from breakfast to madness. That line hits like a blow, like a wake-up call, telling a whole story in the simplest way imaginable. No words of more than two syllables, no more punctuation, than two commas and a period. It was a lesson in the school of plain is beautiful. It is the poetry version of the prose of Thoreau and Orwell. It reminded me of the lesson the poet Richard Wilbur taught in his talk at Bredlow when he told of the dying woman who commanded her family to fix breakfast. Conference in 1966. I met another poet, Maxine Kuhmin, who became a great friend for life. Max lived in Newton, a Boston suburb, and I had moved from New York to Boston when I was a Neiman Fellow in journalism for a year at Harvard in 1963-64. I didn't like Harvard or Cambridge, but I went to visit an editor friend on Beacon Hill And when I saw the neighborhood, I knew it was home. Except for a few side trips to Hollywood, I lived there for 40 years. Maxine Kuhman was a wonderful poet, and her best friend was Anne Sexton. Max got me together with Anne for drinks and dinner, and the three of us became buddies. Max had met Anne and George Starbuck in a poetry class, at the Boston Center for Adult Education, an old mansion on Commonwealth Avenue, where I later was to take workshops and offer one of my own. That Boston Center was not only a beautiful old building, but a powerful sort of energy center for the creative life of the city. Max and Ann worked so closely together, they had a dedicated telephone line. This was long before any internet or cell phone, so they could edit their poems together from each of their homes. One spring semester, when Max won a traveling fellowship, she asked me to teach her writing course at the Newton College of the Sacred Heart, and a few years later, she taught my graduate writing class at Boston University when I had to be in L.A., I introduced Anne to Kurt Vonnegut at a party at my house on Revere Street on the hill and they immediately began talking about Cinderella. Anne was writing a book of poems based on Grimm's fairy tales and Kurt borrowed a pencil and a piece of paper from me and he drew her his diagram of the plot of Cinderella which he often used in a talk on the plots of stories. It is shown In his book, A Man Without a Country, in his essay, Here is a Lesson in Creative Writing, Anne was so taken with Kurt's analysis of Cinderella that she asked him to write a foreword to her book of poems based on Grimm's fairy tales, Transformations. As Vonnegut so often did in his work, he articulated what had only been feelings I had about Anne's poetry. This is what Vonnegut wrote in his foreword to her book, Transformations. I asked a poet friend one time what it was that poets did, and he thought a while, and then he said, they extend the language. I thought that was neat, but it didn't make me grateful in my bones for poets. Language extenders I can take or leave alone. Anne Sexton does a deeper favor for me. She domesticates my terror, examines it, and describes it, teaches it some tricks which will amuse me, then lets it gallop wild in my forest once more. She does that for herself, too, I assume. Good for her. I can think of no more precise explanation of what Anne Sexton's poems do for me and for so many readers when, for instance, she writes in the poem, Her Kind, I have ridden in your cart, driver, wave my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright routes, survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. On May seventh, nineteen seventy-three, I got a call from Max to come at once to her house in Newton to celebrate with her and Anne. They were all ready into the first bottle of champagne, but there were plenty more. Maxine had won the Pulitzer for her latest book of poems. Up country, Anne won hers in 1967 for Live or Die. Anne asked me to introduce her at a reading she was giving at Radcliffe. We first had dinner, and Anne was very nervous, worried that the reading was in too large a hall and not enough people would show up. As we approached the huge old gothic haunt of Harvard's Memorial Hall where the reading was scheduled, we saw five or six people standing outside. Anne moaned, look, there's only a handful of people. That hall is so big, this will be a disaster. When we finally got into the hall, it was packed to the ceiling, standing room only. As always, Anne's presence at the podium transformed her calming her nerves to a stately and sober stance in command of the scene. She delivered one of the best, most moving poetry readings I had heard. She was a favorite on college campuses and enhanced the appeal of her performance by forming a rock group, Anne Sexton and her kind. Of course, there were some poets and lit crits who sniffed and condescended and condemned her popularity, as well as her breaking of polite, poetic boundaries. Maxine Kuhn explained, she wrote openly about menstruation, abortion, masturbation, incest, adultery, and drug addiction, at a time when the proprieties, Embrace none of these as proper topics for poetry. Anne proudly showed me a gold emblem she wore on a chain around her neck. It was in Latin, and she translated, Don't let the bastards get you. In the autumn of the year that followed the happy celebration of Max's Pulitzer, Anne completed work on her new book of poems, The Awful Rowing Toward God, and could wait no longer to arrive at her death. Some critics who like to attribute creativity to neurosis or mental illness claim that writing poetry was a factor in her suicide. Such a twisted concept could not be farther from the truth I heard Anne Sexton say more than once, it's the poetry that keeps me alive. God bless her mighty soul. After Anne's death, I did not again find a new poet whose work I loved and championed for many years. I assumed I never would, but life eventually erases all assumptions, good and bad. Of course, I always kept up with Max's work and appreciated it, as I always did, but it seemed as if my life in poetry ended with the awful rowing toward God. Around the time I got to know Anne and Maxine in the late 60s, my emotional attention was grabbed by the new music. I remember a moment when I first got it about the Beatles. At first, I had dismissed them as kid stuff from England, long-haired hippies, blah, blah, blah. But I can see and hear again one moment in a Boston apartment when I stopped whatever I was doing and listened, enthralled by Norwegian wood. Oh, my God, this is something new. I used to lie on the grass in the Boston public garden and look up to the bright green foliage, and here in my head, here comes the sun. I was a guest teacher at the University of Illinois Journalism School in the spring semester of 1968, living in a depressing apartment in a cinder block building called the Hoover Chiropractic Clinic, across from the Red Wheel Diner. The wheel blinked on and off all night like a prop in a bad noir movie. While driving back to my grim apartment, the gloom was suddenly lifted by a voice on the radio. It was so distinctive and so uplifting. I pulled over to the side of the road to hear the rest of different Drum" by Linda Ronsat in The Stone Pony. It was like discovering a new poet. Two years later, I got my dream assignment to interview Linda Ronstadt after one of her performances at the Golden Bear in Redondo Beach, California. That made up for the semester across from the Red Wheel Diner. Can anyone forget the first time they heard Janis Joplin sing Me and Bobby McGee or Joni Mitchell singing Clouds? or Judy Collins' Who Knows Where the Time Goes. It wasn't the words that mattered so much. It was the music, the voice, the sound. I remember taking Max to my apartment to make her listen to Collins singing Who Knows Where the Time Goes, and she stood there listening. And then when it was over, she said, just looking at the wall above the record player, pronouncing these words as if reading a line from a very dull student paper. Who knows where the time goes? I was embarrassed. I had thought it was some wonderful new poetry. The words were mundane. The poetry was in the voice. Those voices made any words sound profound and witty and sad and happy and wonderful. And those were the last to do that for me in pop music. At some point before the turn of the century, it became fashionable for pop singers not to pronounce the words. It was fashionable and became the only way to sing, to mush the words. Recently, a dear friend had me listen to a song by the hot new star Billy Elish. I lost it. I yelled at my friend. Why can't she pronounce the damn words? I demanded with angry old-guy ardor. Chet Baker may have been zonked out of his mind on heroin when he whispered spoke his song, but by God, you could hear every word like this. Is your figure less than grief? Is your mouth a little weak? When you open it to speak, are you smart? Can anyone imagine, in wildest dream or nightmare, not being able to discern every syllable of a song sung by Frank Sinatra, or Billie Holiday, or any one of the Mamas and the Papas, or the Beach Boys, alone or together, or any great pop singer before the Mushmouth mouth era? So, as far as poetry and music goes. I assumed I would never be knocked out again or stood on my head by hearing a new song or poem, but that was all right. I had stored up enough of both to live on in memory and books and DVDs. I should know by now, after 87 years, that whenever you make such assumptions, assuming you have any clue about life whatsoever, they are sure to be broken. The first poem I have heard, I mean really heard, since Anne Sexton, that got me in the gut, in the head, and in the heart, was at the last place where I would have expected to hear it. It happened in 2016 in what was billed as a Resist Poetry Reading on the south side of Indianapolis. You could not fail to miss one syllable of this poem, Reading her poem. She has been described as performing her poem. She doesn't dance around or throw up her arms or use a hula hoop or any kind of prop. She simply speaks with utter clarity and conviction so that you cannot miss one syllable of her poem. Her name is Tasha Jones. Her poem describes an art in the history of the world and in particular, the history of this country, from pyramids to plantations to projects to penitentiaries. The poet and IUPUI professor Karen Kovaci, who had organized the event as part of the Pan-America's National Program, later wrote of Tasha's poem, for all who believe we are living in a post-racial society, Tasha Jones' poem is a bracing corrective. Tasha's poem challenges us to live in the truth. Ms. Jones not only gives us the art of this shocking history, she personalizes it in images and phrases that are as vivid as they are valid. Most remarkably, she makes beauty out of horror and evokes for me as a Christian the sorrow and compassion of the Jesus of the Gospels. Follow me to the good book where people are metaphors for trees and peace is found in the stillness of streams. Follow me to the good book For the end is known in the beginning, and the beginning is known in the end. Life, of course, has unwelcome surprises, pandemics. Poems and music help us get through. I think often of a line from the title poem of Maxine's book, Our Ground Time Here Will Be Brief. We gather speed for the last run and lift off into the weather. My run has been longer than I ever expected. I don't know how I got this far and ended up where I started. I could never have made it without the poets and singers and jazz musicians and writers of all kinds. I love them because they got me here. They're still with me. They still feed me. Bless them all.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So beautiful. Uh, there are so many lines in that piece that I just love. That Right at the beginning when you say that jazz was the background music of New York in the 50s and poetry was its liturgy. Yeah. It's a great way of explaining what that is to you. And that the line where you say something about the words fact or fiction, oration or prayer. And I noticed in what you read yesterday from returning and just, you know, looking at your own work even line by line, it occurs to me that part of what you got from poets. Has a lot to do with the musicality of your own language—not show off musicality, Mm. but the kind of rhythmic moments in your sentences that you know can hear even when you read other people's poetry. I
1: forgot that *Returning* was a good book.
0: Yeah, it really is.
1: But I tell you, the book in the fifties is not—I mean, it's sloppy. And really could have used an editor.
0: Well, maybe talk about editors in a second. I have a couple questions yeah. just about that piece, which is, I just want to say, is mm-hmm. extraordinary for a number of reasons. Those are all great stories, wonderful poetry. You had the opportunity to meet so many incredible mm-hmm. people from the 20th century, and also I think it's incredible because you just put that piece together a couple of weeks ago. And to all my, you know, 18 to 22 year old students who think that, you know, you're done with your best work by the time you're 30 or I just I think that's an incredible essay. So I also I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about Maxine Kuhnman and Anne Sexton's friendship or, you know, the difference between. Their poetry, I mean, Vonnegut said that Anne kind of domesticated his terror. What would you say that Maxine's poetry did for you? I would say it
1: saw, it understood your daily life. I read one of her poems, and I was asked to read it at a wedding of one of my students, and it was a poem that was like poet on. Her 80th birthday, or it was about marriage. She had a very long marriage, and they early on got a house. They bought an old farm in New Hampshire, which a lot of smart people in Boston did. And I used to go up there. My God, that was the one place where I did cross-country skiing. <laughs> which I probably couldn't get two yards on She was
0: athletic, wasn't she? I mean, I think of her as being a horsewoman. She was a
1: great swimmer. And also, I used to think I was a pretty good Scrabble player. And in New York, in the old days, I used to go to Ted's apartment on Sunday nights. We would have these all-night Scrabble games and send out for Chinese food. And I was really good at those. And then I played Scrabble with Maxine's. I could hardly get off the board. I mean, she and her son and husband are just they were on some other level. It's now. funny. But
0: I somehow can't imagine Maxine and Anne Sexton being good friends.
1: Yeah, they were they were the best. Oh, can you imagine having their own telephone line?
0: Uh, no, I can't. So, you know, Maxine would just pick up the phone and it would ring at Anne's house. And vice
1: versa. They read over every line.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: You must have an image of Maxine as being very
0: straight. I think I do. Maybe that's why I'm asking. I mean, you know, we all have an image of Anne Sexton. I've seen videos of her reading. Yeah. And whenever, I can't say that I've ever seen a video of Maxine Kumin, or even sought one out. So mostly I just have kind of, you know, photographs in my head. But, I mean, she was a poet. She had her wild
1: outside.
0: Do you do? Yeah. Um, you don't need to go into it unless you want to. Oh, this is kind of a grand faloony thing to do. You know, the part in Cat's Cradle where... The characters are saying, Oh, he's a Hoosier, he's a Hoosier too. And I was just thinking, it occurred to me that you read Ulysses and studied it in college fairly early, yeah. and that the person who published Ulysses in the United States was Margaret Anderson in the Little Review, and that she was from Indianapolis. J.J. J. Johnson, of course, the trombonist you mentioned, is from Indianapolis. And Kenneth Rexroth was from. The region, because really? yeah, he was. He wrote kind of, a, you know, an interesting autobiography about growing up, you know, around Crown Point, South Bend. So you know, everyone's a Hoosier. Karen. Yeah, Karen Kavachi. from the region. Yeah, so that was my little grand faloon thing to do. Let's see. Oh, I didn't know Ann Sexton had a band. Yeah. That's just really yeah. great.
1: And you know, she had that poem, Her Kind. Right, you know, I've so been her, her kind, yeah. Her Kind.
0: Did she sing? No,
1: she read the poem Oh, she read the poem, so it was in the
0: It was kind of like Rex Roth's Jazz Agree or something.
1: Yeah, but
0: different. I don't think
1: of it in the same way. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's really great. I would love to see something about that.
1: And I think they were sort of students, or grad students, I who were musicians. And boy, that reading she gave at Harvard. I wish I could. I remember that that introduction was mercifully short, and I used a Vonnegut line. He talked about where he was, he was supposed to give a lecture on some book or writer and he said he opened his mouth and nothing came out and so i said it's so i'm like you know i'm trying to think of how to describe an Sexton in poetry and i opened my mouth and nothing came out mm-hmm. you know. great
0: you know i have a friend who's a poet who saw anne sexton read probably a little bit later than that and One of the things she said that bothered him was that she needed to go mad again in order to get the next book of poetry. And I know that you mentioned that, in fact, that was kind of the thing that saved her rather than the thing. What
1: killed her was the drinking and the psychiatrist who didn't ever mention it might be a good idea to stop. And, you know, the same right. with me. You know, I think my my guy once, after I'd called him up at 3 o'clock in the morning, said it'd be good to not drink so much. But in those days, people could do any kind of psychiatry and, you know, go in drunk to see their therapist or whatever. But, yeah, listen, if she had... Just imagine that class... At the Boston Center, there was a guy named John Holmes who taught a poetry class. Boston was that John
0: Cleland Holmes or a yeah. different... Yeah, I knew John Clellan Holmes. No, no. what? I don't think it was. He was a friend of Kerouac's. No, and, yeah, no. When different Christmas John This was
1: a Boston guy. Mm-hmm. But she, Anne, and Maxine were like housewives in the suburbs and Starbucks. I don't think he was married yet. An editor, lowly editor at Oatmeath, and they take this poetry class, and then they all started meeting at the Ritz and drinking martinis before. Uh, but, you know, it's so funny when I think of Breadloaf now as this great sort. When it was happening, I thought it was just a great place to have a party.
0: Yeah. And, it was
1: just, yeah. and it was infamous for that. And Richard Yates had a famous thing that he had ended up, he was there once and somehow ended up on the roof of the staff cottage in a Christ pose. Mm. They had to call the fire department from Middlebury to get him down. Had he so, been
0: drinking? Oh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: He was never not drinking. He was
0: never not drinking. Yeah, I mean, alcohol, that particular generation of poets, I mean, you mentioned Dylan Thomas an earlier, uh, poet, but, you know, dying of alcoholism in his late 30s, it's so tragic. Yeah. And, and you um, know, and
1: Fitzgerald at,
0: what, 44 or right? James A. G. at 44 45.
1: And, you know, Pete Hamill wrote a book, Called those drinking days, mm-hmm. in which he talked about, and I was so glad because I didn't want to be the only one said that we were told that in order to be a serious writer, you had to be a serious drinker, and that was just you know.
0: Well, in um, addition to being told by Hemingway that you needed to get shot at, yeah. which luckily my generation I don't remember ever hearing that, but drinking heard that one. Yeah. yeah, you know, like you're having trouble with your manuscript, go drink a bottle of wine, and, you know, by the end of the bottle, <laughs> yeah, yeah you'll, you won't have any problems anymore, which I wondered when you mentioned Robert Frost ate ice cream at the party, was he a recovered alcoholic? I don't know this, or
1: I don't know. It was just sort of he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, yeah. he just wasn't interested. And did you ever hear of a poet? Named Leonie Adams? No. She was the poet. He said, you've given up.
0: Oh, um, interesting. Uh,
1: I really didn't like that because I, I sort of had a crush on her. She was older, but like a very lovely older woman, mm-hmm. sort of, and a good poet. But
0: The class that... Maxine and Anne were in... That's not the same class. Were they in a class with Robert Lowell and...
1: No, that was McLean's.
0: That was at McLean's. But but Max was never... Right. I've always been fascinated, well, who isn't by McLean's, because there's so many jazz musicians who were also there, and James Taylor. And,
1: you know, in Florida... My best friends in my condo were Frank and Marian Del Vecchio. Marian wrote a wonderful memoir, I thought, that, whatchamacallit, the, the bookstore guy in Miami.
0: Mitch Kaplan?
1: Yeah, he didn't publish. I thought he was crazy. It was, she had an amazing life. And she'd been to Mclean's and was in a musical comedy there that mm. somebody had staged, and some guy in Miami had been in there.
0: but I think that was partly why maybe particularly women who came along after those you know the generations of poets who had kind of passed through McLean's in one way or another got the idea, not that you had to drink or be shot at, but that you had to be crazy in order to to write poetry. Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge Grady. Funding for Naptown was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon-Rory Dashmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in Nattown. Naptown